Good morning. No, the lights are off. You're wondering why. How many of you own a TV? This is a good thing. I'm not going to get mad at you for owning a TV. How many of you own a TV? Okay, and how many of you have HD TV? Okay, see the hands, right? Okay, I'm going to tell you why you own an HD TV right now. Right? You think it's to watch Gonzaga get crushed. It's not. I'm sorry, that was mean. It's to watch the Huskies win. And, and for this. Okay, I'm not a big trailer fan, but you got to see this. So let's watch this for a few minutes here. Okay, I get jazzed up watching that thing. Uh, if you own a TV, that is why you do it. And if you can't worship God watching that show, I don't know, man. You've got something wrong with you. So if you need to watch it in HD, you saw the hands. Invite yourself over to their house tonight. It starts tonight, and uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, so it doesn't really have that much to do with the talk, but I didn't want anyone to have an excuse not to see it. And it is called Life, and as you know, we are done with Philippians. Uh, our Easter service is going to kind of dwell on life, on the resurrected life of Christ, and ask the question, what if Christ hadn't risen? Kind of look into that um, with knowing the answer. Um, and then today we're going to spend some time kind of preparing for Easter in the wilderness. Next week, look at Palm Sunday. And then after Easter, we've asked small group leaders to submit some questions just on theology or whatever, just big questions, and we are going to do our best to attempt to answer them, and that will take us all the way through June. So that is what's happening here at New Community for the next few weeks. Um, but today is the wilderness, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at two different wilderness stories, but mainly at the Matthew chapter 4 story. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, we are in the middle of Lent. Actually, we're approaching the end of Lent. We've got about two weeks to go. And Lent, <clears throat> the reason, excuse me, we practice that is roughly based on Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. And uh, Lent is kind of this idea to me to spend our own 40 days in the wilderness, in a sense, to uh, experience what it's like to be thirsty. Again, I have some friends who are literally thirsty. They are fasting from drinking anything but water for 40 days. So they're getting at this point where, yeah, I'm thirsty. And I think that's kind of the idea of Lent. And I have some uh, friends who are avoiding sleeping in for the entire 40 days. So they're waking up early. And they're starting to say, yeah, I'm tired. I'm getting tired. And I think the whole idea of this thing is to lean into maybe the, the suffering a little bit, the hard parts of life. We live in a culture that doesn't like to lean into the hard parts of life. In fact, we like it very much in happy land. And we like to do anything we can to stay in happy land because that's where we're supposed to be. And Lent is this time where we say, no, we actually value some of the hard things and the tough things and being out of happy land because, in fact, we find often that we're closest to God when we're out of happy land. I heard this illustration from Shane Hips. He said, we experience, we appreciate a flashlight the most, not in the bright sun, but when we're in the darkness. Love that illustration for Lent. This is a time to kind of be in the darkness and appreciate that light. Now, of course, this idea is not to just sit 
in the wilderness, to sit in the desert, but to move out of it. Move out into the promised land, into life, into the resurrection on Easter. And so I hope as we kind of look at these wilderness stories that we can think about how can we use these last two weeks to best prepare us to celebrate the life and resurrection of Christ, to prepare ourselves for Easter. So, Matthew 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, when I read that, I have a few questions. And the first one is, how did Matthew know this? Right? We're going to find four main characters in this story. We've got Jesus. We've got the Spirit. We've got the tempter. We've got desert or wilderness. And none of those main characters are Matthew. So how did he learn this? Some people might say, you know, he got into the catatonic state when the Holy Spirit had him write the Bible. He and Luke and... I would say that's maybe a possibility. It's kind of odd that their stories are a little bit different if they were both hearing from the Holy Spirit. Second, second one I would go with is that Jesus actually told his disciples this story. He actually told Matthew the story. Matthew was one of his disciples, and he told him the story. So I, I can kind of picture it. You know, one night they're having dinner. The disciples are there. And Jesus says, you know, I need to tell you guys about my time in the wilderness. Forty days in the wilderness. Really? Yeah, Jesus. What is this story? We haven't, haven't heard this one. We haven't heard it. Well, it was tough. It's tough. And, uh, but it's something I need to tell you. Okay, well, well, Jesus, why were you out there? What's the deal? Well, the Spirit led me. The Spirit? Now, why would the Spirit lead you out in the desert, Jesus? And we come up with, again, answers in our mind, in our culture. We don't like being in the wilderness. We don't like the hard times. So why would the Spirit ever lead us into the hard times? came across this quote from Dallas Willard. I think it explains it very well from his opinion. Today, sustained withdrawal from society into solitude, or you could add fasting, seems to indicate weakness, suffering, flight, or failure, rather than great strength joy, and effectiveness. The desert was his fortress, his place of power. Again, probably not the way we most often view the wilderness. At least I don't. We usually view it as, oh, he led him out there, got him at his worst when the devil came. Maybe Jesus was at his best, and thus he was able to say no thanks to the devil. And so maybe the first kind of thing Jesus is telling his disciples is, guys, guys, no, hey, don't be afraid of the wilderness. It's okay. There's a lot of good in there. And sometimes the Spirit even leads you there. Okay, all right. So you were tempted, Jesus. You were tested. This word is kind of this tested for approval. Well, who was, who was testing you? The Spirit? No, no. The devil? Yeah. The devil. The tempter. And again, when we hear that, the tempter, maybe we think of something like this. Does anybody think of something like that, actually? Okay, no, I don't either, especially this thing. It's just, I, I'm not sure Jesus ever did that. Um, but that's the painting. Okay, or maybe we think of something like this. Ooh. The tempter from the Passion of the Christ. You know, a little more modern, a little more relevant, a little more shady, sneaky, scary. 
Maybe he was there right next to Jesus through this wilderness. But what I don't want us to get distracted by is that there was necessarily this guy from the Passion of the Christ right there. Maybe the tempter came to Jesus the way he comes to all of us. Those thoughts in your head. Those little voices. Oh, yeah. Take a look at the magazine. Not a big deal. Yeah. Check it out online. Yeah, you do need that. You do need that. Again, I'm not saying it necessarily happened that way, but I think we need to be careful that unless the devil's standing here and we see him, to know we're being tempted also. It's not always so clear, so obvious. The devil is much more clever and subtle. So he says, the devil, he was there tempting me. And the disciples, it's tempt- I mean, Jesus, could you have failed? And Jesus says, guys, can I tell the story? Okay, verse 2. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. So Jesus, he says, yeah, I was out there. I fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus, were you hungry? Yes, I was starving. Why wouldn't I be? And maybe at this point in the story, the disciples start to remember another story of the wilderness. Happened a long time ago. Kind of their heritage. It's out of Deuteronomy 8.2 that kind of recaps this story of wilderness. Listen. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Pretty interesting. We've got these two stories, and they're pretty similar. We're in the wilderness. One is Israel. One is Jesus. It's 40 years for Israel, 40 days for Jesus. And there's this tempting, this testing going on. And Jesus continues his story. And the tempter came and said to me, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And again, we kind of read that. Sometimes I do. Oh, the tempter, oh my goodness, what a silly thing. Make the stones become bread. Then I think about it. He's out there. He's starving. He's hungry. And the devil says, or Jesus thinks, You're hungry. Yes, I am hungry. You can make stones into bread. Yes, I can make stones of bread. If you're the Son of God, do it. If I'm the Son of God, why not do it? Yeah, wait, why, why shouldn't I do this? And the disciples, what'd you do? Jesus said, well, I answered this. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And Jesus goes right to this old story, the story of the other wilderness temptation. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, again, which says this, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so Jesus goes back to this story and he quotes from it. You've got Israel. They're out there in the wilderness. And they're complaining. And they're moaning. And they're bitter because they're hungry. And they say, you know what? What are we doing out here? This is ridiculous. You know what? I liked it better when we had food back in Egypt. 
And here we are out here in the desert. We have no food. And they're whining, and God answers, which is encouraging to me. But he answers, and he says, okay, you know what, guys? I'm going to give you some bread. But here's the deal. There's a couple rules. First, you can only take as much as you need for that day. So the first thing Israel does, of course, is they take more, and the next day it's rotten. And God says, ooh. And then God says, and there won't be any bread on the Sabbath. So on the sixth day, I need you to take twice as much. And Israel goes out on the Sabbath morning. Where's the bread? What happened? What's going on? God says, ugh. But we have this idea of this story. They're hungry. God answers them, and he gives them bread. But he has this point to the message. Yeah, yeah, you need bread. But what I want you to know is this. It's not really just about bread. It's about the life that comes from me. So yeah, you have life from bread, but bread isn't the life. I am, or maybe even I am the bread of life. It's amazing how consistent the messages are throughout the Bible. Jesus said it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. I love that answer. And to see the disciples, oh, that's the bread I want. Give us that bread. So you have these two stories, very similar. Forty, testing in the wilderness. You've got one story where they're complaining and moaning and bitter. God, we want bread. We got, come on. You have this other story of Jesus. Yeah, I'm hungry. Yeah, I could make bread. But there's something bigger going on here. This isn't really about bread. This is about the life of God that I'm going to bring. And he doesn't complain. And he doesn't moan. And he doesn't become bitter. And I ask myself, which wilderness story do I live in? Which one is me? Well, there's another test. Verse 5, the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, Jesus, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So you can again picture Jesus telling him this story. And if I'm the disciples, I'm going, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean he took you to the pinnacle of the temple? How did the devil take you there? And does he take you other places? And how did that look? Did you guys like fly through the air? Or did you just kind of appear there like that jumper movie? I mean, what was going on? And when you were there, could other people see you? Or were you in like an alternate fourth dimension where you could see them, but they couldn't see you? I mean, what was this looking like? I don't know that we really get the answer, so you can just ask questions with me. Or maybe Jesus was up there on the temple and he was thinking about this verse. And thinking, man, if I jump off here, it says God will protect me. It's true. And I kind of like this, this part of the temptation. It's kind of a little throwing Bible verses back and forth, right? I mean, Jesus said, hey, man does not live on bread alone. And Satan comes back with, oh yeah, well, what about Psalm 91? Here's a verse for you. And it says, the person who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and says, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust, he will not be afraid of terror by night. He will be delivered from the snare of the trapper. 
No evil will befall him, no plague, and he will give his angels charge to guard you. And the disciples are like, okay, well, yeah, what did you do? Jesus says, "Ah, I said, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. If I'm the disciples, I'm going, well, that that one's good, but I'm kind of liking the Psalm 91, honestly. I mean, I like this idea of no terror, no evil, no plague. Angels will guard me. I'm kind of digging that one. Jesus says, you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. And let me remind you again of that other wilderness story. That other wilderness story. Israel was out there in the desert. God had brought them manna. They're fed. And so what do they do next? Oh, we're thirsty. Man, we are thirsty. Why are we out here in the desert? It was so good when we were back there. And they started to whine and complain again. And in fact, Moses gets freaked out. And he goes to God and says, listen, God, you've got to do something. Because these guys are going to kill me. They're going to kill me. I mean, they, they are asking, where are you? And they're going to kill me. And God says, okay, take a staff, strike a rock, and water will come from it. And it does. Water pours out. But there's this great verse in Exodus 17, the end of this story. And it says this. They test the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the story Jesus references. They were testing the Lord, saying, is the Lord really here? Maybe that's what this temptation is a little more about is, God, are you really with me right now? I'm standing here. God, are you really with me? Are you really going to be with me through all of this? And again, we have the two stories, complaining, whining, God, God, and Jesus. Quiet, no complaining, no bitterness. And he says, you know what? No, I know God is among us. I know God's here. I see him, and I have no reason to test it. I'm sure he's here. So Satan, great verse you brought up in Psalm 91, but I don't need to prove it. I know God's here. And then I ask myself, again, which wilderness story do I live in? Which one is me more often? There's this final test in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, Jesus, if you fall down and worship me. You kind of get to this part of the story and you go, Okay, that's what this was about the whole time. Fall down and worship me, Jesus. Listen to me. Prove to me. Worship me. And Jesus gives the answer, Go, Satan. Get out of here. Scram. Game's up. Because it's also written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Get out of here, man. Got no time for this. And again, we have these two wilderness stories. How many times was Israel told, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only? We went through it in the Ten Commandments. We saw judges over and over. Worship the Lord your God only. And yet Israel always seemed to be attracted to these kingdoms of the world. Jesus, no. No thanks. But it made me think about this, right? They were up on this mountain and and Satan shows them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I start to wonder, what did that look like exactly? What did it look like? Maybe they're up there. 
And Satan starts to build this building, the kingdom of imperialism. And not just on a national level, but personal imperialism. The personal expanding of my empire, taking control of others. Look how large my territory is. Look of who is under me. And these constant efforts of humans to prove we've expanded our empire. And maybe Satan builds this building and goes, look at this. Oh, Jesus, doesn't this look nice? Look at the glory of it. How about the kingdom of revenge? Maybe another one. And immediately we think, oh, yeah, revenge. You know, if I'm punched, I don't punch back. What about the subtle revenge kingdoms? What about, I'm not going to call him tonight. He didn't invite me out last time. And we'll see how it feels. Oh, it feels good, doesn't it? A little glory in that, a little kingdom of revenge. And Satan starts to build this thing. Jesus, wouldn't this one look nice? And oh, my goodness. Think of the times Jesus had opportunity for revenge his whole life over and over things are done to him he's sitting up there wondering boy it would be nice to have some revenge wouldn't it what about the kingdom of power obviously the kingdom of power and its glory how good it would feel to command the soldiers command this army I don't know personally but I know how good it feels to command a friend I got a little power here. It feels good, doesn't it? Maybe Satan lays out this army. Jesus, think of what you could control here. Think of the power. It's exhilarating. Think of the glory in it. What about the kingdom of lust? I just read about the Oasis of the Seas. It's the largest cruise ship ever built. It costs $1.4 billion to build. There was this article kind of going through all the great, fun things you can do on this cruise ship. And the article ended with this, this paragraph that I had to read you. It says, by Tuesday, you're ordering two entrees and multiple desserts at dinner. By Wednesday, the karaoke singers in the on-air lounge are sounding like American Idol finalists. By Thursday, you're tuning into a video rerun of cruise director Richard emceeing the Love and Marriage game show. By Friday, you're stopping by the pizza parlor for a late night slice. And then it says this, just because you can. Oh. Yeah, you're going to be having two entrees, multiple desserts. Give me, give me. Why? Just because you can. So maybe Satan put this little cruise ship out in the bay. Look at this one. Look at this one, Jesus. Lust, desire for things. Yeah, that's got some glory, doesn't it? Maybe the kingdom of religion. Think about this. I mean, the Pharisees had a great little kingdom going. I mean, they had this thing locked and loaded, nailed down. They're the ones that ended up killing Jesus. So you wonder up there on this mountain, hey, Jesus, man, I can get you in with these guys. You won't tick them off. We'll get you right in. You'll be with them. And who knows what that may look like. They may not even want to kill you. They may embrace you. They may love you. Just get into this one. The kingdom of pleasure, of riches, of pride. We can go on and on. You just see Satan kind of constructing this great little scene. And Jesus, 
being tempted by it. It says he was tempted, and maybe, oh. But you know, I, I got to say, Jesus said, oh, Satan, you know what, that's a nice little village you've built there. I like the cruise ship touch. But you don't understand, man. I don't want it. You don't understand what I'm all about. This is so much better than anything you've built for me here. Huh. You have no idea. It was back in January. I was driving here in the morning, 6.30 or something. It was dawn. January is pretty much the time of year I can't stand Spokane. It's ugly. It's cold. I'm driving down Nevada, which is not really a pretty street. And I'm just driving down going, oh, you know what? This is, this is just another Sunday morning. And I look over, and the sun was rising. And I've seen how many sunrises. I mean, we've all seen sunrises. And, you know, when you're on the beach in Maui, we kind of, whoo, look at this sunrise. And, well, yeah, it's, you're on the beach in Maui. But this morning, I looked over on that morning, and I went, man, look at this sunrise. And I actually slowed down, and I was just staring at this sunrise. And it was beautiful. It made me stop. And I thought to myself, how is it that this sunrise, this thing that we see every day, literally, or we don't see it for sleeping. This thing that happens every day, how does it make me stop? I compare the great things man makes and builds and constructs and beautiful cities, and I've been to a lot of them, and they are beautiful. But this simple sunrise, driving to work on a Sunday morning in January, makes me stop, and I say, man, that is just beautiful. And I got I to gotta feel like it's kind of the same deal going on. Satan constructs this beautiful little kingdoms of the world in all their glory. And Jesus says, oh, Satan, man, let's look at this sunset. Look at this kingdom I'm living in. This stuff is nothing compared to me. You don't understand the kingdom I'm making, Satan. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of forgiveness. It's a kingdom of mercy. It's a kingdom of servanthood. It's a kingdom of weakness. And in fact, Jesus, this kingdom I'm making, it completely flips yours upside down. I mean, this whole thing, yeah, isn't that clever? I was pretty proud of that. It turns it all upside down. Satan, I don't want any of it. You don't understand. This is nothing to me. And then I wonder, which wilderness am I living in? There's one important thing to remember, and we said it at the beginning. The point isn't to stay in the wilderness, but it's to move. There's this beautiful passage out of Deuteronomy. It's a little bit long, but just listen to these words of where God was moving Israel out of the wilderness. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, 
which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Man, what a beautiful picture of this promised land, of the place God was bringing Israel. So that they might remember when they got there. Remember the wilderness? Remember what God did? Man, he's brought us here, and we have to praise him for that. And so the question again is, which wilderness story am I living in? Or maybe I'm afraid of the wilderness, you know? Again, our culture says, I don't want to go into the wilderness. And maybe life is great for you right now. It's fantastic. Your teams are winning. Things are going well. Maybe we say, find somebody who is in the wilderness and stand by them. Or maybe you are in the wilderness and it's tough and it's hard. We need to be reminded of this promised land where God is bringing us. There's two wildernesses, grumbling, mumbling, complaining, whining. God, make me some bread. God, are you even here anymore? Where are you? God, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me this. And Jesus, bread, yeah, but I've got something so much deeper. I've got true life. Oh, God, yeah, he's here. He's among us. I see him everywhere. I don't need to test it. And yeah, these kingdoms of this world and their glory, they look pretty good, but you have no idea of the kingdom over here. Which one of those wilderness stories is the one that brings life, which brings abundance, which brings the beautiful back to us? I love the way the story ends. Verse 11, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I mean, I think that's kind of what we're all shooting for, right? The devil said, all right, forget it. I'm not going to get this guy. And the angels came and began to minister to him. So again, here we are, two weeks to go before Easter. Are we afraid of the wilderness? You know? Maybe it's a good two weeks to do something that gets you out of happy land. Maybe think about fasting. Maybe think about getting up early. Maybe think about doing something a little hard. Or again, just being with someone who is in the hard times. With the hope, with the remembrance that we are moving to the promised land. We are moving to Easter when we can celebrate the abundant life that Christ brought us with his resurrection the abundant life that he promises us, the transformed life that he promises us, and we can do it right when we celebrate. But let's not be afraid to spend a little bit of time in the wilderness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another amazing story. We pray, Lord, that we, we wouldn't be afraid of the wilderness culture tells us to run from it. Lord, help us to lean into it a little bit 
sometimes acknowledging that you're leading us there even. Lord, so that we can learn that this life is so much more than just bread, but the bread of life that comes from heaven. That we can learn, Lord, if we open your eyes, you are here. You are among us, and we don't need to test you. Where are you, God? Where are you? That we can learn, Lord, that the kingdoms of this world, they are enticing. They have their glory. But, Lord, may we remember that it was the tempter who said, I will give you these. And he said it because they are his. Lord, may we be moved by your kingdom, by weakness, by servanthood. Lord, that your kingdom that turns this world upside down. Lord, may we spend some time this next couple of weeks a little bit in the wilderness. And may we celebrate on Easter what you have done. May we celebrate your life, your death, the resurrection, the abundant, beautiful life that you have brought for us. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you that you are an amazing God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.